I'm reading from Luke chapter 24, verses 36 and through to the end of the chapter. Jesus appears to the disciples. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they'd saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and feet. It's I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost doesn't have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, this is what I told you when I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You were witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. I tell you what, it's nice to be looking at faces. How great was that song, right? That, earlier, that's the second time I've seen it. Earlier when they played it, I was standing at the back, tears in my eyes, all this. I thought I'd be immune this time, but I was standing over there tearing up again. Um, two thoughts I had with it. One, I can remember, and some of you will remember this as well. I can remember when we had one guitarist in the whole of church. That was all we had. And how good has God been to us? But the other thing, I was, I was watching it and I thought, there's a bit of a promise in there that fairly soon we're actually going to have a band in front of us and we're going to be able to sing. Uh, we're doing this for two more weeks after this before we can get back into school. Hopefully it won't be too long after that before we can actually start singing together. But I, I just thought that was the best thing ever. Um, now what you're looking at here is the end of a love affair. Who, who knows what this is? Uh, sing it out, someone who knows what it is. This is, this is Ezio. If you've never heard of it before, Ezio is a home yogurt maker. And uh, just over a year ago, when Emma brought it home for the first time, I fell in love. And I tell you, I fell hard. I'd, I'd never imagined something as amazing as this Ezio thing. I loved everything about it. The creamy taste, it's quite creamy yogurt and the different flavours, there's vanilla and strawberry, blueberry, bit of a letdown, but the vanilla and strawberry are amazing. But it's just the idea that you can have yogurt anytime you want. You can be sitting in the bath eating yogurt while it's making, because you can just make so much of it. In fact, I loved it so much, I went out and bought a second container so that we would always have one in the fridge and one being made. And I remember having this thought, I think this is something that I will never, ever get tired of, this easier thing. <laughs> of course, 
tragically I have. <laughs> the joy for me has it's, it's kind of disappeared. And it started slowly, but I noticed that after a while, I didn't get that sense of anticipation in the morning when I woke up about having easy over breakfast. And then it got a bit of a hassle to make it because you've got to mix up the container and the powder and the water. And, and now, to be honest, we actually had to go hunting for the container and it's sitting at the back of the on top of the thing in the laundry there and the joy is gone i'm a jalna man now i'm i'm kind of jalna is my source of joy and it's funny you know isn't it there's most of us have i think a slightly similar experience when it comes to the gospel the message about jesus i didn't grow up as a christian so i still remember the first time when i was 16 just having this amazement at hearing the truth of jesus so the idea, are you telling me that God himself has died to pay for my sins? For me, that was extraordinary. It was earth-shattering, the idea that God died for me. Are you telling me that God loves me, not because I'm lovable, but just because he is so loving? That blew me away. The idea that heaven was real and that I would spend eternity with God, those things were just... They were just intoxicating. I still remember the thrill of it all. But of course, it has to fade over time. I've been a Christian for 30-something years now. It's hard to sustain that initial joy for 30-odd for years, isn't it? And yet, I don't know about you, something inside me says, I want to rekindle that joy. I actually want to have that sense of this is an amazing thing. And so my goal today is a fairly ambitious task. I want to rekindle your joy in the gospel. I want to help you to re-experience your joy at becoming a Christian, whether you've been a Christian for six months or 60 years. But here's the thing. I'm not going to do it by just reminding you of the joy you had when you first became a Christian. I'm kind of hoping to show you a deeper source of joy in the gospel, a greater... What I'm hoping is we're going to get a more Jesus-centered joy. That's my goal, a Jesus-centered joy. See, one of the coolest things I've discovered in this last little while as I've been looking at joy is actually just how much joy people get from the person of Jesus. So when you read the Gospels, people are just completely overjoyed in Jesus himself. For one, people are overjoyed because Jesus has come. I've discovered a whole bunch of verses that I'd never really noticed before, and one of my favorite ones is that John the Baptist leaps for joy as a fetus that Jesus is coming. So Elizabeth and, uh, and Mary meet, and Mary's pregnant with Jesus, and Elizabeth is pregnant with John the Baptist, and Elizabeth says, as soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Just the prospect of Jesus coming to earth is enough for John the Baptist as a fetus to leap for joy. Don't you love that idea? I really enjoyed that verse this week because Jesus is a source of joy. His coming to earth is a source of joy. So when the shepherds hear about Jesus' birth, the angel says to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the, sound of, in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. See, just the idea that Jesus is now walking on earth is a source of joy for everyone. Because do you realize what this means? 
It means that God is now walking the planet. Do you know that last, last weekend was the, the 70th anniversary of The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe being published? 70 years since that book came into our lives. And you know, one of the bits I love about that book is this growing sense of excitement throughout the book that Aslan has finally come to Narnia. You know how the rumor goes out, Aslan is abroad in Narnia and the, the witch's spell is beginning to break and spring is beginning to come. And it's all because the Lord has come to Narnia. That's the joy that the angels sing about in Luke 1. That's the joy that John the Baptist has. Because do you realize what's happening here? For the first time since God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve, God is now walking on the earth again. That hasn't happened since the garden. And now God is among us. He's Emmanuel. And so, of course, when Jesus rises from the dead, the joy just, just increases, doesn't it? When the two Marys go to Jesus' tomb, the angel says to them, don't be afraid, for I know you're looking for Jesus who is crucified. He's not here. He's risen. And so the two women hurried away from the tomb, afraid and yet filled with joy. Put yourself in their shoes for a minute. This is the Jesus who you've loved, you've walked with, you've supported, you've ate meals with. He is beloved to you and your grief at his death was more profound than anything you've ever had. And now you hear that he's alive. That joy in Jesus being alive. It's the same that the disciples have as well. The disciples hear that Jesus is risen. We saw it in the passage that was read for us earlier. You're not going to have to do much Bible flipping this morning, but open up that Luke 24 passage if you've got it. Luke 24, verse 40. While the disciples were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And they were startled and, and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your mind? Look at my hands and my feet. It's I myself. Touch me and, and see. A ghost doesn't have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe it, because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything to eat? You see, it's that same amazement and joy. These people who'd walked with Jesus for three years and had been sunk in despair at his death, and now they're just joyous that Jesus is risen. They're joyous because death has been defeated. Sin has been defeated. Satan has been defeated. Christianity is all about the joy of a risen Jesus. Which, just as an aside, that's why we don't wear crucifixes. Has it ever struck you as strange that Catholics wear crucifixes, but Protestants don't? We don't wear crucifixes. The, the, the crucifix, if you don't know, is the, the cross with Jesus still on it. We don't wear them. Because Jesus is alive. Jesus isn't on that cross anymore. He's not still dead. He's alive. But when you think about it, a crucifix is a gloomy, misery-laden symbol. But we are not the people of misery. Jesus isn't on the cross anymore, and he's not in the tomb anymore. We're the people of joy because Jesus, the one who was crucified, is raised from the dead. That's a cause for joy. And we actually preach with that same joy. If you've still got Luke open, look in verse 44 and look at how the spread of the gospel is portrayed here. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. 
everything must be fulfilled that's written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. And he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. And he told them, this is what was written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And I'm going to send you what my father has promised. But stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. And when he led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually in the temple praising God. Just see what happens there. The disciples are filled with joy because Jesus has risen. And Jesus says that joy is now going to spread. That joy of the risen Jesus is going to go out to the nations as they hear that Jesus is the Messiah. So I think, I th- I think sometimes we get the sense that this, the whole of the Christian message is kind of bad news. Because that's what the world keeps telling us. Now that we've become the bad guys... We kind of feel a little bit apologetic about being Christian and a little bit apologetic about telling people this news. But in verse 47, we preach the message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. We have the message of joy. Come turn back to Jesus and you can be forgiven. You can have God's mercy. You can have God's love and God's kindness. Everything about Christianity is this message of joy. God has walked on earth. God has risen from the dead. His message is going out to the nations. See, Christians actually have this joy because of Jesus. And yet here's the thing that that I've realized this week. This is actually something that has changed the way I think kind of about Christianity this week that I'm really excited about. You know, the greatest joy of the gospel, I don't think it's our joy at all. I think it's actually Jesus' joy. Have a look at what the author of Hebrews says about Jesus right now. He says, You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. That's Jesus right now, right this minute, this morning. God has set Jesus above his companions in heaven. And he's sitting right next to God and all the angels are worshipping him. And Jesus is joyful. Jesus is happy. God's anointed Jesus with this joy because of the gospel. In fact, the prospect of this joy is what got Jesus through the cross in the first place. So look what the author of Hebrews says later on. He says, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. See, this promise of joy is actually what got Jesus through the cross. Even as he died, he knew God was going to raise him and that he would have this experience of joy in heaven and adoration. He knew he'd be seated and worshipped and adored. And Jesus held on to that. On the cross, he clung to it. That's what got him through, the the wrath and the blood and and the tears and the death. 
we actually have a king whose heart is swelling with joy. Look, when you stop and think about that, in a strange way, isn't that actually the best part of the gospel? Sure, I, I want us to get joy from the fact that we're also saved. But isn't the idea that Jesus is now filled with joy even better news in some way? This week, I think it's kind of changed the way I think about Christianity. I, in some way, I get more of a kick out of Jesus being joyful than out of me being saved. I think it's got something to do with the fact that Jesus is more worthy of joy than I am. Jesus is so deserving of this joy. You know, you know just occasionally, we have this experience in, in our society where somebody who's been really denied joy suddenly, finally get what they deserve. And it might be somebody who's, you know, lived and they've been downtrodden for years and years or they've been unappreciated for years and years and years and they've battled on and then finally they, they come out into the sunshine. They, they get the recognition they deserve or they win the court case or they get the compensation. But, but s- suddenly someone gets this joy that they really, really deserved. And that actually just fills our hearts, doesn't it? Because it's a deserved joy. And that's Jesus after the cross. After all the pain, after all the heartbreak, after all the horrors of the crucifixion, in fact, when you think about it, because of the horrors of the crucifixion, because he went through it all, God is just delighted to give Jesus this joy in heaven. Doesn't that really warm your heart? I love the picture of Jesus in heaven bursting with joy. See, the one thing I've realized is I really want to have a Christian faith that is more focused on Jesus' joy. Could it be one of the reasons I struggle to maintain my joy in the gospel is because I'm, I'm trained and tempted to only really think about what I get out of it. I kind of only ever see the lesser part of joy. So like imagine, if you, imagine if you had a friend who their entire life, they had only ever seen the moon. In their entire life, they'd never actually seen the sun. And so for them, the moon is as bright as something can possibly be. And then you show them the sun. And they're just dazzled by how bright something can be. They're blinded by its brilliance. Could it be that that's our experience of joy? We've only ever really dwelt upon the fact that of what we get from the gospel, the joy that we get from being saved. And yeah, we're going to talk about that in a minute, and it's wonderful, but... I just have this hunch that the more I focus on Jesus' joy from the gospel and Jesus' worthiness and Jesus' adoration, I wonder if that will actually increase my joy. I wonder if that will lead me to live a much more radical Christian life. The more focused I am on what brings him joy, I wonder if I'd be a lot more sacrificial and a lot more obedient. I'd care a lot less about things like money and reputation Because I'd be focused on this thing that really is worthy of joy. That's a Christian life that I can actually really get excited about. And yet I don't want us to forget, and I don't want us to lose the joy of what we get from the gospel, which is salvation. Have a look at what uh, Peter says in 1 Peter 1. He's talking about how miserable the Christian life can be. That's the background here. He's talking about trials. He's talking about suffering. And he says, these trials have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, 
which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you don't see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you're receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I love that description of the Christian life. Even in the middle of trials and hardships, he says, you guys have an inexpressible and glorious joy, a joy so great you can't even find words for it. Why? Because the end result of their faith is the salvation of our souls. And just as another aside, souls there can be a bit of a confusing word, can't it? Because when we think about the word soul, we usually mean the opposite of our body. So our soul is the kind of floaty, ghosty, non-physical bit of us, and then there's our body. But that's actually not the way they use the word soul. For them, it's the word psyche. It's where we get psychology from, and it's the catch-all word for all of us, the, the entire person, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, relational. And what he's saying is, a day is coming when God is going to save us totally. He's going to save us physically from the world of suffering that we live in, from trials and pain. He's going to save our bodies from things like grief and depression and illness. He's going to save us relationally from broken relationships. He's going to save us mainly, of course, from his wrath. That's the greatness of our salvation. On the last day, when God destroys the world, we who trust in Jesus will be saved. Instead of burning up with the rest of this universe, we are going to be taken to heaven and we're going to spend an eternity with our God, an eternity joining Jesus in his joy and basking in it and loving it and reveling in it. We get all of that. And we get it all because Jesus shared the most precious thing in the universe for us, his blood. Just a few verses later, Peter says, For you know it was not with perishable things, like silver and gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. That's how our psyches, our souls are saved. Jesus shared the most precious thing in the universe for us. Something more precious, even than silver and gold. In fact, God redeemed you with the only imperishable thing in the universe, himself. This is a new idea for me. When you think about it, everything else in the universe is perishable because everything else in the universe is created and some things perish really quickly, like us, like our bodies. They're perishing even as we age and some things perish really slowly, like silver or gold. But there's only one imperishable thing in the entire universe, and that's God, Father, Son, and Spirit. 
And yet God decided to spend the only imperishable thing in the universe to save us. Don't you think that's extraordinary? That that whole idea that God placed that much of a value on your psyche. I mean, you think about it, it's not because we were worth that much. I mean, when you think about it, we're just creatures, right? No, it's not that our souls are worth that much. It's that God valued them that much. God loved us that much. To spend the only imperishable thing on the un- in the universe on us. Never in all of the universe has something so precious been spent to get something worth so little. Isn't the gospel amazing? And the thing is, God wasn't forced to do it. No one forced him to. God didn't have to do it. In fact, in verse 20 there, God chose Jesus to shed his blood before he'd even created the world. The implications of that idea are just huge. That means before God said, let there be light, he'd already planned for Jesus to die for us. Before God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve, he had already planned for them to eat that fruit. And he'd already planned for Jesus to become a human being. And he'd already chosen that Jesus would shed his imperishable blood for us. And he'd already planned heaven. And he'd already planned our salvation. God planned all of that, in verse 20, before he created the world. How incredible is the gospel, right? How incredible is God? Before he did anything else, God decided to expend the most precious commodity in the universe, the blood of the imperishable Jesus, to die for creatures. Worse than that, creatures who ignored him. So that those creatures might spend an eternity in bliss and delight and sharing the joy of Jesus who is now anointed with the oil of joy. That is an inexpressibly beautiful thing, isn't it? That is the thing that just kind of warms your heart. So I think the longer we live as Christians, the more tempted we are to lose our joy in the gospel just by virtue of familiarity. I'm convinced that doesn't actually need to happen. I've become convinced that if I can spend the rest of my life really working hard to understand this gospel better, digging into it more, understanding who it is that died for me, understanding what it is that that death achieved, understanding the future that God has for me, reading about it in the Bible, reading about it in books, talking about it, I'm convinced that the more I dwell just on the gospel for the rest of my life, the more joyful my life will actually be. Can I recommend a book to you? This is a book called The Cross of Christ, and it's probably in the last 150 years, this is the book written about the cross of Jesus. And the thing that's so wonderful about this book is it doesn't just explain it to you, it woos you. It it leads you to love the cross. Other books lead you to defend it and teach you how to argue for it and explain it. This book teaches you to love it. Costs about 20 bucks secondhand. I looked on uh, the cheapest one I could find online last night secondhand was 15 bucks. 20 bucks? 
That's four coffees in Newcastle at the moment. It is the best 20 bucks you will ever spend. The Cross of Christ by John Stott. You know one of the verses that jumped out at me this week? You can tell I have loved this week. One of the verses that really jumped out at me was Matthew 13, where Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold everything he had and he bought that field. That is the message that we believe in. We believe in a message that so fills you with joy that everything else in the world is worth selling just to be able to get it. Because we believe in the message that God now walks on earth, that God shared the most precious thing in the universe in order to buy us, that Jesus is, is joyous in heaven. And when he returns, we're going to go and just bask in that and share it. That is worth being happy about, right? Let's pray. Father, we praise you for Jesus' joy. The thought that our beloved Saviour this morning is basking in the adoration of heaven, that angels are singing to him, and that after the horrors of the cross, you've raised him and seated him there and that Jesus is joyous. That's such a beautiful thought for us. And we praise you that we get to share it with him. We praise you for the salvation of our souls. That when Jesus returns, we'll get to be with him. That we're forgiven. That we're paid for and that our eternity is secured. We pray that we'll spend the rest of our lives digging into this. Father, it's so natural for us to lose some of that initial sense of joy, but we pray that we will have that deeper joy that comes with knowing it better and understanding it better. And we pray that you would constantly fill us again and again with the wonder of this. And we also pray that we would have the same joy that the disciples anticipated of this message spreading. To think that the people we really love could have that joy of knowing that Jesus died for them, that Jesus' blood was shed for them. We pray that you'd give us that, that thrill of our friends coming to hear this. And we pray for thousands of people in Nui and Lake Mac having that. Amen.